we exist to come alongside people who are hurting, who are broken, who are messed up, to come alongside them and give them love and to give them grace and to give them encouragement until they can rise above it and walk on that path on their own. We are Pathway Church, located in Burleson, Texas. We worship together, we serve together, and we grow together. Hey guys, can we give a round of applause to our kids? I've seen that video like five times and I laugh every time. They crack me up. They're really funny. But they're, they're asking all of us to help name the space. So if you have time as you, as you leave today and then online, you can participate as well. But in the house, go by the, the now uh, booth. And, and if you got an idea of what to name the new space, write it down, drop it in. Uh, also, for everybody here, when you walked in, you, you got this. And all, it's just real simple. Don't overthink this. It's just... Since we thought, since we're in this series about healthy relationships, but hey, it'd be kind of cool just to know just a little bit more about each other, about the people that we worship with, just some interesting fact about yourself that, that people don't know that you're okay with them knowing. Just write it down and, and drop it off as you, as you leave. So in, in the spirit of this, in the spirit of, of random facts about ourselves, what you, what you might not know about me is I, I love a good story. So much so that I, I love studying the art of storytelling. What makes for a good story? Why is a story good? What is it that makes it compelling? What is it that draws me into a story? Uh, but I'm also aware of stories that aren't so good. So here, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to offer you a story and tell me what you think. So once, there once was a guy who was good. He was the good guy. And he has a problem. And he comes in contact with the bad guy. And the bad guy is all bad. Good guy's all good, the bad guy's all bad, and eventually the good guy comes up with a solution for the problem, gets around the bad guy, and he wins. How interesting is that? It's not very interesting. It's not. It's a terrible story. But I would argue a lot of the, a lot of the movies, a lot of the books, a lot of the plays that, that we see or that we read, they could all be reduced down to that simple formula. And it's just, it's not, it's not a good story. So this is what I think. This is what I think is what makes for a good story. You know, of course, you, you, you got to have the hero of the story, and there's got to be a villain of the story, and of course, there's got to be a victim. But what makes the story good is when the storyteller provides a little depth into the characters, and you understand them a little better. You know, because when we first watch a story or a movie, we, we want to connect with the hero, right? Who doesn't want to be the hero of their own story? We all want to be the hero. But the good stories are the ones where they talk a lot about the villain, and they reveal the depth of their story. You get their origin story, and when that happens, more often than we probably want to admit, we connect with the villain. One of the best examples I can, I can point you to about this being done, there's a show on Netflix. It's called Cobra Kai, and if you haven't seen it, it's it's great, and, and here's why I think it's great. I mean, there's some obnoxious things about it, but the idea, the premise behind it is, is great. I, I'm a child of the 80s, and so I grew up watching The Karate Kid. And so if, if you're about the same age as me, you know that the bad guy in that story, Johnny Lawrence, I mean, he's like public enemy number one. If we're, if we're power ranking 1980s villains, Johnny Lawrence is right up there with Ivan Drago and Darth Vader. I mean, he's the worst. 
But then Cobra Kai comes out. And what do they do? They shift the story. They make him the protagonist. They reveal his origin story. You understand more about who he is. His character has depth, and you connect with him a lot more. At least I do. You see, that's what makes for a good story. When the lines get blurred between good and evil, when the characters are three-dimensional, because that's who we are. None of us is wholly good or wholly bad. We're kind of navigating that space between those two points. That's who we are. And when we see that in stories, that's when we connect, which is why I will tell you, uh, I, prove me wrong, but I, I still contend the best movie of all time is this movie right here. It's a great movie. And why is it great? Because the main character, Michael Corleone, in case you don't know, this, it's The Godfather. And if you don't know, at some point you want to check it out. It, it's a great story because he's the main character, but if you've seen it, you know he's not a good guy. He's not a hero. In many ways, he's very much the villain, but if you watch the story, you find yourself at times rooting for him. You find yourself rooting for the bad guy. That's what we connect with, the ambiguity, the, the gray in life. But all of these stories, the, the good ones at least, they're, they're redemption stories where the character is in search of some form of redemption. And at the heart of a really good redemption story is this one idea, and it's the idea of forgiveness. In a good redemption story, the main character is going to have to wrestle with forgiveness in some form or another in order to emerge on the other side transformed. And when he does, that's when the story is good. I would argue, as we all wrestle with this idea of healthy relationships and boundaries, we too need to become masters in the art of forgiveness. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that as we awoke this morning, your grace was there waiting for us. And we thank you that we know as we lay down tonight, your grace lies with us. And we thank you that for all the moments in between those two points, your grace walks with us, sustains us, creates new life in us. So Father, Teach us a little more today about the gift that you offer through forgiveness and how we can receive and give better. In Jesus' name, amen. In your Bibles, I want you to open up to 1 Samuel 17. And we're going we're gonna to do a lot of skimming today because there's a lot of information in the Bible to cover. But as we, as we wrestle with this idea of forgiveness, we're going to take a look at Saul and David and try to understand a little bit more about their story and how forgiveness is a part of that story. And it's a messy one. But before we do that, just have an open conversation about forgiveness in general. And so I'm going to offer to you a couple of things of what forgiveness is not. The first thing is this. Forgiveness is not the same as reconciliation. Those are two different things. Sometimes forgiveness will lead to reconciliation, but sometimes it needs to not lead to reconciliation. Sometimes we get those out of order, and we think that reconciliation will lead to forgiveness, and most often it doesn't. It just doesn't work that way. Also, forgiveness is not pretending like something didn't happen. That's not forgiveness. Forgiveness is not glossing over something and acting like it's not that big of a deal. That's not forgiveness either. So here's my definition for you 
just a working definition in your notes number one forgiveness is not allowing someone else's brokenness to own real estate in my spirit you see forgiveness it's being fully aware of an offense understanding the depth the pain of that offense and choosing to move beyond it choosing to not let that be the story that you tell it's a part of your story but it's not the whole but how do you do that how do you get beyond some of those deep moments of pain in your life well that's where saul and david come in in their story but before we dig in here i would invite you if you're so inclined to connect just briefly with an area in your life where maybe resentment has still got a stronghold in your spirit Identify an area where forgiveness has not been a part of this story and just consider the possibility today of how that might change if you invite forgiveness into it. Now, Saul and David. The challenge with this story is that in order to understand how forgiveness is in this story, we, we would have to go through the entirety of 1 Samuel almost. But who's got the time? Do we have the time to read through an entire uh, book of the Bible right now? No, we, we don't. We don't have that kind of time. We, can't, we don't have the time to binge watch the Netflix show on Saul and David. We don't have that kind of time. So what do you do? What do you do if, you, if you're going to go visit with some friends, go hang out with friends, and there's this show that you know they've all watched and you haven't seen a lick of it, but you know that's what they're going to talk about, and you don't have the time to binge watch the show. What do you do to get into that conversation with them so that you have some idea of what they're talking about? What do you do? Well, you just you go, to the, you go to the title page on Netflix and you just read through the episodes, right? And you read the breakdown. I'm not the only one that does that, am I? Okay, good. That's what we're going to do. Uh, we're going to go through the episodes in the Netflix show of Saul and David and quickly get us up to speed. So here we go. It actually looks like it's a show on Netflix, doesn't it? They did a great job. All right, so episode one, David defeats Goliath, becomes unlikely national hero. This is what David is known for unlikely hero, Cinderella story, a guy from nowhere, just this nobody who defeats this Philistine giant with just a few stones and a slingshot. Episode two, David and Saul's son, Jonathan, they become best friends. So we're getting a little character development here. We're starting to see how Saul and David are going to intersect. Episode three, Israel praises David over Saul. Saul becomes jealous. Now we got conflict in the story. This is when the story really starts to come alive. Episode 4, Saul tries to attack David, but David escapes. Okay, so now we got a real issue on our hands between the main characters of the story. Episode 5, Saul becomes fearful, paranoid about David. So at this point in the story, Saul's character is starting to unravel. Episode 6, hoping David will die in battle... Saul sends David to go fight the Philistines. His plan doesn't work. He becomes more afraid of David. So at this point, Saul doesn't want to be responsible for David's death. He's like, I'll just send him to, to fight and let the Philistines do my dirty work. But it, the plan doesn't work. Episode 7, Saul tries to have his son Jonathan kill David. Plan doesn't work. Jonathan warns David. David goes into hiding. But then Jonathan intervenes. He goes to his dad. He says, Dad, you're losing your mind. David's not the enemy. He's a friend. Saul has a change of heart. He welcomes David back home. End of the story, right? No. No, it's not the end of the story. It's, it's, uh, you see these in movies every now and then. It's called a false ending. Episode 8. David is victorious in battle. And guess what? 
Saul's jealousy returns. Saul tries to kill David again. Again, David has to go into hiding. Episode 9, Saul becomes angry that his son Jonathan is helping hide David. Saul, at this point, actually attacks his own son. This is, this is where Saul is mentally. He's, he's not well. And then episode 10, Saul continues to play the victim. He goes crazy. His own brokenness spills out beyond his own world and extends to people in other places as he wipes out an entire town. And this is where our story begins today, our story of forgiveness. There in chapter 24 of 1 Samuel. So here's what's going on. David's hiding in the wilderness. Saul finds out roughly where David is. And so Saul takes 3,000 of his best men, marches them out in the wilderness to go find and kill David. But along the way, Saul's got to, he's got to make a pit stop. Nature calls. He sees a cave. He's like, hey, I'll, I'll go over there in the cave to use the restroom. What he doesn't know is that David, at that very moment, is hiding in a cave. Can you guess which cave Saul walks into? Yeah, he walks into the cave that David and his men are hiding in. There at verse 4, And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. David's men are stoked. The very guy that's out there hunting David is right there in front of them, completely defenseless, has no idea that David is there, and his men are like, David, this is it. Attack. This is your revenge story. He's right there for the taking. Just take care of him now. What does David do? He sneaks up to Saul, and he cuts off just a corner of Saul's robe, and then he feels a nudge from God. And this is how he, how he responds. There in verse 6, he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing that he is the Lord's anointed. I want you to let that sink in. Saul, a man who's lost his mind, who's so deranged with paranoia that he takes thousands of men out in the wilderness to go kill one guy who happens to be his most successful military commander, a man in Saul who's so paranoid, he attacks his own son. This guy is standing right in front of David, defenseless, and the moment for David's revenge is right there, and David says, no, the Lord forbids it. I'm going to have no part of this revenge story. I'm not going to do it. And just so we're clear, as we're assigning roles to the different characters in this story, at this point, David is the victim. Saul is the villain, but he doesn't know it. He thinks he's the villain, victim, but he's, he's really the villain. This idea of relationships and boundaries, at the heart of it, like I said, is forgiveness. If you're, if you're in a relationship with somebody long enough, forgiveness is going to be a part of that relationship. But the problem is this. It's not an easy thing to do. Just a quick show of hands to let me know who here is really good at forgiveness. Nobody is. It's not an easy thing to do. It seems to cut directly against our survival instincts. To offer forgiveness seems to go against how, how, what we think it means to, to stay alive, to survive. But if we're going to be in meaningful relationships, if we're going to be in healthy 
relationships, this idea of forgiveness is something that we want to develop. It's a discipline. It's a skill, but it's important. And here's why. In your notes, number two, forgiveness is both a self-care and a selfless act. Last week, Rick and Kim, they, they led us in a great conversation about boundaries, about, about control, and how, how we treat each other. So I want you to think about forgiveness. Forgiveness is not allowing yourself to lose control, to let your junk spill out into areas beyond your control. This is what forgiveness is. It's taking responsibility for the junk in your life. And here's the tricky part. Even the junk that's in there, that's been put there by somebody else. Because they didn't take responsibility for their junk. This is why forgiveness is such a difficult concept. There's a, there's a vicious cycle that's created in relationships when forgiveness is not par- a part of the equation. So I have here four blocks. I'm just going to stack them up here. Now, what do you suppose is going to happen if I tap this block on the end? What do you think is going to happen? It fell down. Huh. Okay, let's try this. Let's try this. Let's stack them up like this. Huh, that happened again, didn't it? This is what our relationships are like. When we don't do the hard work of forgiveness, the cycle is repeated over and over and over again. I'll tell you one of my struggles. I have a hard time admitting when I'm wrong. I do. I know it's a fault, but it's, it's definitely my fault. I, I'm, I'm highly analytical, very logical, and I never stop thinking. I'm always processing something. So anytime I offer an opinion, it's been predicated on a lot of thought. I'm never going to just flippantly offer an opinion. So I have a hard time admitting when that opinion is wrong. Early on in, in my marriage, my wife, Kristen, she, she made a comment. She said, Chris, you, you always think you're right, don't you? And I thought about it, and I was like, well, yeah, sure I do. Doesn't everybody? I mean, I, and I told her, I said, how can I, I, it would be impossible for me to think I'm right if I know I'm wrong. I hope, I hope somebody here understands the point I was trying to make. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if, I, if you understand my point or not. What we can all agree on was that was not the right way to answer that question, was it? It was a stupid thing for me to do. I would have been doing much better to just look at her and say, Honey, you're right. And she would have been happy. And I would have subtly still be making my own point. We'd all been good. But I, was, I just I wasn't smart enough to figure that out. But why, why is that? Why do I struggle with that? Well, my dad. He's been a great father, really has. But his understanding of being a good dad is being somebody who's in control. And for him to admit he's wrong would have been a weakness. And so he struggled to admit when he was wrong. But guess what? His dad struggled with it. And his dad struggled with it. You see, we have a way of picking up the dysfunctions from our parents. And without even realizing it, carrying it forward into the lives of our kids, just like these blocks. You see, when someone else's junk spills out into our world, it's easy for our whole focus to shift on what's happening to us. And our focus turns into, why is this junk here? 
why did you do this to me? Why? Why? And when we do that, when our entire focus is on what's been done to us, we don't realize that as we're reacting to it, we're allowing our junk to spill over into the next person. And it happens again and again and again, over and over and over again, until somebody decides to get healthy. Somebody decides to take responsibility for the junk in their lives. Not just their own junk, but the junk that other people have placed in their world. And this happens. This is why forgiveness is important. It breaks the cycle. It absorbs all the junk flowing into it without allowing it to spill forward into the next. This is who David is. And this is the point of his story, where he is the victim. Every one of us, at one point or another, this is going to be us. We're going to be the victim. That, that's going to happen to every one of us. So don't be surprised when it happens. You see, being the victim and choosing to play the victim are two different things. Do you understand what the difference is? See, I, I know a guy... who he had a point in his story where he was the victim. And that was the story that he would tell over and over and over again. Years later, decades later, after that story had long passed, guess what story he's still telling? He allowed the junk placed into his life by somebody else. He allowed it to consume him, and it was killing him inside. And it destroyed the relationships around him. And every time he screwed up, guess what story he would tell? With every addiction that consumed him, guess what story he would tell? You see, at that point, he's no longer the victim. He's choosing to play the victim. Do you see the difference? You see, David was the victim there in chapter 24, and he's got a choice to make. He can either choose to play the victim... Or he can choose forgiveness. And what does he do? He chooses forgiveness. Like I said, this is a critical point in the story. In all of our stories, that point where we become the victim and how we respond. It says everything about how our character in our story develops. You see, at this point for David, he chooses forgiveness. And because he does this, his character Develops. It transforms. In your notes, number three, forgiveness transforms the victim into the hero. Like I said in the beginning, we all want to be the hero of our story, right? We want to be the good guy. We want to be the guy that wins. We want to believe that the best is possible for our story. But the harsh reality is this. It comes by way of forgiveness every time, every time. And I want you to pay attention to something that's really important. <clears throat> your character and your story is developing every day. Life doesn't allow for static characters. It doesn't. You know, we're, we're, not, we're not cartoons. Recently, I was watching The Simpsons with my son. Uh, and it's interesting. I'm, I'm surprised by how polarizing that show is. It, it, back in its heyday in the 90s, it was great commentary. I absolutely love it. But we're watching it, and my son says, 
Dad, isn't it kind of weird that you know, this show's been going on for over 30 years, and they haven't aged a bit? And I was like, well, yeah, of course not. It's a cartoon. What do you want? And I'm stating the obvious, I know, but what might not be so obvious is this. Sometimes we think our lives are like cartoons and that we can just hit the pause button and not grow, not die, just kind of be static and hang out for a little while. It's a myth. It's not possible. It's not how life works. Every day, your character and your story is developing physically, mentally, spiritually. It's happening. And if you don't come to terms with this idea of forgiveness, the way that your character develops is heading in a direction that you probably don't want it to go. I want to go back to chapter 22 in 1 Samuel. I mentioned it just briefly, but I want to highlight something about Saul. Now remember, David, David's been a faithful member of Saul's army. He's done everything Saul has asked. He's done it well. But Saul's jealousy overpowers him. And he becomes delusional to the point that he actually starts playing the victim. And this is how he does it. This is Saul playing the victim. Verse 7. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands, commanders of hundreds, that all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when, the son, when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. Saul has lost his mind. He's choose to play the victim for a long time now. He's got an inferiority complex like no other. You see, Saul's origin story is this. He came from the smallest family, from the smallest tribe in all of Israel, and whenever he is asked to be the king, this is how he responds. He's like, me? Why me? I'm a nobody. I'm, I'm, I'm from a nowhere place. Why me? You see, Saul has an inferiority complex that he never deals with. And all it takes is one moment of Israel praising David in the streets and Saul's inferiority complex comes roaring back to the scene. You see, our issues from our past, if we don't deal with them, they have a way of haunting us later in life. If we don't take time to work through forgiveness, over time... We go from being the victim to choose to play the victim that it leads to resentment, so much so that we lose empathy for anybody else. Because at that point, all that matters is my pain, my heart, what was done to me. I don't care about your world. You, you take care of your own junk. My pain is, is worse than yours. You don't, you don't understand. This is what happens. For Saul, his past, his hang-ups, his issues, his junk that he didn't deal with, it builds up. So that in chapter 22, he's so deranged that he's lost all respect, all reverence for humanity. And this is, this is what happens. Verse 19. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword, both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep, he put to the sword. Because of, Paul, of Saul's inability to take care of his own junk that had been put in his life... He responds by spilling out into other people's boundaries and invading them in the worst possible way. He wipes out an entire town because of one man. 
I promise you, it would be impossible for me to over-dramatize the importance of forgiveness. You see, you choose to play the victim long enough, and your character and your story develops in another way. In your notes, number four, resentment transforms the victim into the villain. I've recently started reading more and more about the the wars that the United States has been engaged in in the Middle East since 2001, and trying to understand the the dynamic between the different countries there and and the the strife between them and how long it's been going on and and the issues there. And I'm not going to oversimplify the complexities of what's happening there. But as I read, I would argue a part of the equation is the fact that forgiveness is not something that's considered globally. Now, I'm not presumptuous enough to, to think that we can solve the, the issues in, in, the, in the world. But I would invite you to consider your family. Think about your circle, the people that are in your world, your parents, your kids, your cousins, your, your friends, your relationships. How much is forgiveness a part of that equation? How much is it? Because like it or not, However we do with this thing called forgiveness, it will impact our kids and their kids and their kids. Think of of life as this health continuum from relational sickness to perfect relational health. Now, none of us ever get to perfect relational health, but hopefully, if we do it right, wherever we start on that continuum, wherever our parents hand us the ball, when it's all said and done... We move that ball just a little further down the field so that when we hand the ball off to our kids, they're picking up at a healthier place than where we did when we started. And then when they go and they hand it off to their kids, it's a healthier place and a healthier place. We start thinking about leaving a legacy of pursuing relational health. Don't you want that for your kids? So we've talked a lot about why forgiveness is important, but we haven't really said much about what does that look like. So I want to give you a few things, but before I do that, you need to know forgiveness is not a moment in time. That's just, that's not how forgiveness works. It's a process. It takes time. It takes work. The deeper the offense, the longer it's going to take to work through that process. But I would invite you to to go ahead and reconnect with whatever that area in your life is where, where forgiveness has not been a part of that story. And I would just invite you to consider, how might that story change if I allow forgiveness into it? The first thing is this. As you you think about your story and the point where you were the victim and you identify who your villain is, step one, pray for them. You see, this this is what David does. He's, he's in the heat of the moment, Saul's right there in front of him, the man that he's been hiding from, the man that's trying to kill him. His men are around him saying, attack, attack, attack. But because David never stops praying, he, he doesn't respond, he doesn't react to the emotion in the moment. He listens to the voice of God, and that's what he responds to. Now, as you think about your villain, maybe it's your ex. Maybe it's somebody who's stolen from you. Heaven forbid, maybe, maybe it's somebody who's, who's uh, abused you. Whatever it is, just consider the idea of what, what would a prayer be like for them if I were to pray for them? 
And for some of you, maybe that's, that's too big of a step. Maybe you can't even make that step. And if that's you, just maybe your prayer is, is about yourself. You pray to God, say, God, I can't pray for my enemy. I'm not going to lie to you. I'm not going to lie to myself. I can say words, but you and I both know I don't mean it. So God, work on me. Work on my heart. Know my junk. Help me with my junk. Help me get to a place where I could pray for my enemy. Help me get there. And if that's what you can do, that's a, that's a great step. And just you keep working closer and closer to the place where you can begin to pray for your villain. And when you do, you pray that with conviction. You say, God, this person did, a, did an evil thing to me. They are a broken person. But one thing I'm certain of is that your love is stronger than their brokenness. I believe that. And I know the only way they transform is through your love. So, Father, I pray that they become open to your love, that it washes over them in such a powerful way that when they, when they emerge, some of that evil, some of that brokenness is washed away. If you can do that, if you can pray for your villain, step two, serve them. This is what David does. He... He's in the cave. He spares Saul's life, and Saul doesn't even know it. Saul leaves the cave. David comes behind him, and he actually gets down on his hands and knees and hollers at Saul. You see, at the heart of forgiveness is this idea of humility. Now, I'm not suggesting that you go find a villain in your story, and you get down on your hands and knees. You don't need to do that. But maybe you do this. You serve them just, just, just up here. And you do this by how you think about them. You think about that point where their life and your life intersected and you became the victim. And you serve them just by considering the possibility that before that point, somewhere long before that, there was a time in their life where they weren't as broken as they were at this point. You consider the possibility that there was a time in their life when there was hopes and dreams for their life. And somewhere along the way, something went wrong. You consider the possibility that they have a villain in their story. That somebody did something horrible to them. And they just couldn't deal with it. You just, you consider that possibility. And when you think about them, you think about them beyond that one point. And it's a great way to serve them because it's a way you can serve them without them even knowing it. But if you can do that, if you can pray for your enemy, if you can learn to serve your enemy, you begin to develop empathy for your enemy. If you can develop empathy for your enemy, that is huge transformation in your own life. But when you do that, you can get to step three, and that's this. You set them free. You free them from that one point where they were the villain and you were the victim. You free them from that point of saying, that's all, you, that's all you are. You're just that, that one bad guy. You free them from that so that when you think about them, you understand you did a horrible thing, but you're still a child of God. You still are. And here's why this is so important. If you can do that, if you free your enemy, you also set yourself free. You free yourself from being the victim in your story. You're no longer imprisoned by that point in your life where your story just kind of reached a dead end. You set yourself free so that God can continue to write your story 
beyond that one point. I want to finish with this. I want to give you a final definition of forgiveness. In your notes, forgiveness is allowing God's grace to set myself free from brokenness. My own brokenness and others. I want to read something to you. It's a letter. This isn't an idea. This isn't a concept. This is a real-life example of somebody offering forgiveness in a very, very powerful way. And I want to read this to you because I want you to know that it is possible. So we have a family in the church, a family that's very dear to me. And before I met them, they experienced tragedy. They lost their son, tragically, because of a careless driver who got behind the wheel when he was under the influence. So just without warning, they have a son, and he's gone. So they're invited to go to the first day of the trial and read what's called a victim statement. And what they did was they wrote a letter to the man responsible. So I want you to put yourself in their shoes. You've experienced tragedy. Somebody very important to you, somebody that you love dearly, has been taken from you. And you're walking into the room to set your eyes for the first time on the person responsible for it. This is where they are. And this is what they say. Christopher Sechrist was our first child. Our oldest son, a part of life. Before there was Lauren, our daughter, or Douglas, our son, there was Chris. To have life now without him as a part of, as a part of it is hard to imagine. Indeed, many times we think of all that has happened in the past two and a half years, and to think he is gone, that we will never see Chris again, is impossible. We miss him very much. Not a day, perhaps not even an hour goes by where we don't think of him. He was a part of who we are as a family for so long. It is impossible and will always be impossible to not think of him as an integral part of our family. We had our own plans for a future with our children. Never did we think our future would not include Christopher as a part of it. We will always grieve the loss of our son. Always. We are sorry for your physical and emotional pain. Like you, we wish this accident had never happened. Yet we cannot feel anger or hatred or resentment towards you. Only the deepest sadness to no longer have Chris in our lives. For to feel anger or hate is to diminish the memory of Christopher. When we think of Chris, we think of how he loved his family or how he loved being involved in church activities, his enthusiastic competitiveness at sports, his endless energy, his enthusiasm. If we think of you in anger, we forget how Chris, though he had a quick temper, never held a grudge. It was the family peacemaker. When we think of you with hate, we diminish the memory of a young man who forgave many people in his life who wronged him and how Chris simply moved on with his life. When we think of you in anger, we diminish the memory of the young man who made a choice to follow Christ and live his life around God's practices. To hate you would be to deny the promise we have embraced that someday we will enjoy a reunion with Christopher in a perfect place. To think of Chris and remember anything but the wonderful memories we have of him is to deny the joy that Christopher found in life. 
Today is closure for us on one chapter of Chris's life. You made a terrible choice that resulted in a horrible act, but we understand you didn't deliberately set out to kill Chris. We don't know the circumstances in your life, but, we, but do not wish you anything but physical and emotional recovery. The one thing we would ask of you is when you remember the accident, you also remember a very special young man named Christopher Augustus Seacrest. He was an exuberant, fun-loving person who never met a stranger, who had a smile you never forgot. Chris lived his life with an undying passion, and he touched the lives of many people, children, and adults, young and old. Christopher was a young man who was filled with love for his family, his fiance, his many friends, and for God. He was a young man who had a future, a college, a career, a wife, and a life. He was taken from us so suddenly and tragically. But anyone who knew Chris will always keep a part of him in his life. All we ask of you is that whenever you think of this accident, you also remember our son, Christopher Seacrest, and how much he is loved and missed. We ask the DA to give you probation for this accident rather than jail time. We could think of no good that would come from you serving time in prison. Because of your physical impairments, every day you're going to be reminded of this accident and the pain it's caused you and us. To forgive you for this accident is to allow ourselves to move on. To forgive you for this accident is to acknowledge how we have been forgiven many times over by God. Forgiven even when we didn't deserve it or understand it. We asked ourselves, what would Chris do in this situation? We think that he would choose as we do here if he were to speak for himself. We remember Chris as a peacemaker, one who forgave, forgot, and went on with his life. When we ask God for wisdom, when we ask ourselves, what would God have us do? We know not only does he teach us to forgive 70 times 7, but to forgive the unforgivable, just as he has done for us. We share this gift of forgiveness with you. We pray that you will find the same measure of peace and grace in your life that God has blessed us in ours. I challenge you to find a power stronger than that. I challenge you to find a power that can create life quite like that. You want your revenge story? Or do you want your redemption story? You can't have both. You gotta pick one. So which power do you choose? The power of revenge that's not really a power because the only power that the revenge story really has is the power to take your own life. That's it. A power that's gone as quickly as it arrives. Or do you want to choose the power of forgiveness? Do you want your redemption story? Do you want to invite God into your story and invite God through forgiveness to continue to write your story? You see, because this family invited God and forgiveness into their story, God continued to write their story, and God blessed so many people through them, and I'm one of them. A big part of why I'm here is because of this family. 
What do you want God to do with the pain in your life? Do you want to allow it to eat yourself up inside? Or do you want to invite God into that moment and set your villain free and set yourself free and allow God to continue to write your story? What do you want? Choice is yours. Father God, we thank you that even in that moment of pain, the moment where we wondered if you were there, because if you were there, why were, why were we in so much pain? Even then, Father, we know that you were with us and you've been with us every step of the way. That the power of forgiveness that we have experienced personally from you lives within us as well. We are a part of your creation. We have your thumbprint on our spirits and the power that you have of forgiveness. You have given to us the power to change the story. The power of redemption. So Father, we invite you in this power to not just come into us but to flow through us so that the people around us become aware of your powerful love that they experience through forgiveness. Father, continue to write our stories so that after one more redemption story and another redemption story and another one, gradually, this world gets transformed because of your forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, have a good weekend. Have a great day. Be well. And remember, forgive much. Thank you for joining us. If you would like more information on Pathway or to get connected to a ministry, visit our website at pathway.church. We look forward to growing with you as we worship together. God loves you. God is with you.